0: Aren't you grateful for the worship team that the Lord has put together here? I'm so grateful for their efforts, their hard work in leading us uh, to the throne of God and preparing our hearts for the word. Uh, And the children, look, if you think they were cute up here, you haven't seen it. They are so cute in the back. I just want to encourage uh, you to sign up for children's ministry Um, and... Then let Keisha, this is what, your third Sunday in the service in, the, in this this, uh, this year? So um, she could use some help. We've switched things around a little bit uh, so that you're only back there one week during the month if you sign up to serve in children's ministry because the whole month was just difficult. And um, so <clears throat> I will continue to encourage you to do that. In fact, there were two weeks in a row where... Children were prominently featured in the Word, but there was just so much to say. I didn't have the time to encourage you to think about children's ministry, so I'll, I'll do it now. Um, I also want to encourage you to be here Friday night, uh, Good Friday services, 6.30, is that right? 6.30, uh, uh, 7. It's at 7 o'clock, 7 o'clock for our Good Friday services on on Sunday. And, I'm um, excuse me, on Friday, that would be... Um, <clears throat> But listen, some of you might get here on time if I... You know. Well, just kidding. That's one of the benefits of that board. You'll know when the service is about to start. In fact, after we get that digital board out there, we're wanting to get digital boards for everyone's car and home. So, you know, the service begins in X number of minutes. So... um. This past week in Italy, it was, uh, well, not not this past week, but the week before that, every minute was so blessed. Uh, We heard while we were there a story about a young man. Early in 2012, uh, Muhammad, a young man named Muhammad had had enough of his war-torn country of Libya. It was right after Muammar Gaddafi had died, and there was this tremendous unrest, and so He, along with countless numbers of his countrymen, wanted to get out of Libya. Uh, Mohammed is not his real name. Joe and Stefania told us this story, but that name is used to protect his identity. Many of the boats that left Libya, which is right on the Mediterranean coast, North Africa, headed for Italy because of its proximity. It's not too far away. And so this particular boat, was bound for Italy, and Muhammad was just delighted to find passage on this small ship because he was sure it was the beginning of a new life. His dreams were big as he crammed into this boat with so many others heading out of Libya to Italy, to a free land. The boat was so packed, they had them below decks because they didn't want to be seen, and smuggling the people out. And it was so packed, you could hardly turn sideways. I mean, they were just packed in there. And apparently, the operations manager of the ship thought, thought the same thing, because he sent another worker down, and the worker came down and just went, one, two, three, four, five, bam! Shot the fifth person. One, two, three, four, five, bam! Shot him. One, two, three, four. Five, and he pointed at Muhammad. But the man beside him said, Don't shoot him. Shoot me. And it, it confused the, the guy with the gun. And he, he hesitated and he said, Kill me! Don't kill him! Put his gun away, walked away, and nobody else was shot. So they got off the boat and Muhammad said to this man, why would you do that? Why would you die for me? And he said very simply, "Read the Bible. Thank Jesus." Most of us would have said Romans three twenty three, "All have sinned and come." What a gospel presentation! This man simply said, "Read the Bible. Thank Jesus." Have you ever heard the gospel shared any better in five words? Of course, the man had already pointed to Jesus when he offered his life in order to save Muhammad. A trip that had begun with such promise. Can you imagine? You're getting out. You think this is going to be freedom. And in a matter of seconds, a man is pointing a gun at your head. And you're about to die. This trip turned out to be way better than he could have ever dreamed. But he had no idea how it was going to end in that moment. It wasn't the plan Muhammad had made all along. Had he died on that day, he would have spent eternity in hell away from God. But someone offered his life in Muhammad's place and then pointed Muhammad to Jesus. By the way, he is now in A home group still examining the claims of Christ. He's going to a church. And he's in the equivalent of what we have as home groups. Pray for this young man. And and, and there are so many around the world. Whose lives don't touch us. Because we're just unaware. We live in this cocoon. uh, This very nice cocoon. And we talk about how things are worse than they've ever been. No they're not. We just... Maybe they're worse than they've been in America, sure. I'll agree with that. But it's not the way most of the world lives. So let's pray for him to come to Christ. Uh, In our study of Mark, we've seen the plan that the disciples had for Jesus. They they had planned for him to be king of Israel and to throw off the shackles of Rome. and, And they had scripture to back up their plan. They, they could point to lots of scripture and say, this is the way it's supposed to be. The disciples planned to be sitting on Jesus' right and left when he was on the proper throne of Israel. It looked like on what we now remember as Palm Sunday that they were right. The palm branches that John tells us about that were thrown on the grounds. The shouting of Psalm 118 in particular. Hosanna, blessed is the one, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All the prophecies were coming to fruition. There is at least a decent possibility that the disciples were the ones who stirred the crowd as Jesus rode in. They assumed that within days, Jesus would be the leader that the scriptures had prophesied. Within days, of course, the crowds were shouting a different cry Crucify him! Crucify him! And it looked like the plan had gone as far in the wrong direction as it could possibly go. In fact, it wasn't, the gun wasn't held back. Jesus was nailed to the cross and yet God's plan was grander than than any of the disciples could possibly have imagined. Our text today is Mark 11:1 through 11. David and I were both <clears throat> extremely pleased that that this text fell on the liturgical calendar. Uh, I mean, we just, you know, we didn't plan it that way. Somehow it just happened. I have no idea how that happened, that we would be at Mark 11, verse 1 today, on Palm Sunday. I said, David, and then I looked over there where he typically sits there. Sarah just had surgery on Friday. Uh, Cindy Newton had surgery on Friday. We've got so many people hurting in in our body. Just be in prayer. For those in our body. But for the time. Let's stand together if you would. We're going to read Mark 11. Verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem. To Bethpage and Bethany. Bethany was four or five miles out of Jerusalem. Bethpage was just a couple of miles out. At least that's our best guess. We don't know about. Beth Page, if that's even how you pronounce it. Beth Page, or I, I don't know. Beth Page, all right. Well, it got, our resident scholar has spoken. Uh, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Automatic, already we see a different kind of king. He's just borrowing the animal. He doesn't take it. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, we are so grateful for this procession. It acknowledged that Jesus was the king of God's people. We know that it had to be God who would come and die for our sins. And and as David has already uh, reminded us today, when we shout Hosanna, our prayer for salvation is one that is much broader in scope than the prayer that was prayed on that day. When the people were looking simply for Roman rule to be overturned. uh, Lord it wouldn't have seemed small to us if we were under that oppression in that day. But we recognize when we look at the big picture that there's so much more than we see. We see it far more clearly than the disciples did. They would come to see it and be the ones who would tell us everything that you intended on that day. But Lord, in our own lives, there are so many things that make no sense. And we see what we are so certain to be your will go astray. And our hearts are, are saddened, they're hurt, and in some cases hardened. Give us a heart to trust you. May your word open before our eyes this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, the title of this Mark series is The Way of the King. It seems strange as we've gone through the first 10 chapters because everywhere you turn, Jesus is trying to suppress the reality that he is or is suppress the, the word. He's, he's trying to, to, to dampen people's expectations that he is the king of God's people. He's done all he can to conceal his identity as Messiah. Now, on the Sunday of what will become known as Passion Week, on this Palm Sunday, Jesus presents himself to the world, to the people who were in Jerusalem initially, but to the world. He presents himself as the king of God's people. He he did so in accordance with Scripture, even though the religious leaders would, would point to Jesus' actions as being utterly ridiculous, but to the people who were Intimately aware of Scripture or familiar with Scripture, a Scripture that prophesied about the Messiah and, and whose hearts the Lord had touched. Jesus' action pointed to his, both His divine origin and His divine authority. David Garland said this about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He comes as a king who will be crowned with thorns, enthroned on a cross, and hailed as the chief of fools. His entrance points to a different kind of triumph than the one envisioned by the crowd. One that will be far more powerful than any Davidic monarchy and more far-reaching than the narrow borders of Israel or even the Roman Empire. Close quote. That sort of sums up what this passage is talking about. Jesus begins uh, the action by sending two of his disciples to get a donkey uh, for him to ride as he enters Jerusalem. Uh, The the details are interesting. Jesus says, untie the colt, bring it to me. And when people question you, here's what you're to say. Who knows if if it was prearranged or not. If Jesus had already told the people that this would be happening. But he said, just go get it for me. Kings can do that, you know. They can just say, hey, I want that. But again, Jesus is not like other kings. He's saying, I'll bring it back immediately. I need this for the time. This was to be an animal that had never been ridden. Um, You know, one of the things that people say about this is that, well, certainly Scripture tells us in places that that animals that are used for sacred purposes could not be used, have been used for for just ordinary purposes purposes, Deuteronomy, Numbers, 1 Samuel, you know, there there are always stipulations on those animals that would be used for um, particular uh, sacred uses. But even in that day, they say that kings never rode on animals that had been ridden before. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to ride an unbroken animal. You ever ridden an an animal that has never been broken? If I'm king, I'm going to say... Greg Bagley, break this in for me, and and then I'll ride it, you know. I just want you to get him tame enough so that I'm not going to be embarrassed. I, I When I worked at camp, um, this was years before I was director, so this was a long time ago, but I there was a horse named Captain that was pretty, he was a pretty spunky fellow. And uh, one day, we used to saddle him up right outside the rodeo ring, so I just jumped up on him and I was going to take him down to the rodeo ring, but I was going to run him around one time. And I didn't have my feet in the stirrups. Just idiot, you know. I mean, I just jumped on, and I hit him. You know, I kicked him. I never remember coming over the animal. I don't. I mean, it's just I came over his head, hit on my face, flipped all the way. I mean, my whole face, I thought, you know, I'm going to look like this for the rest of my life. It was just raw, my whole face the side of my face i'm not riding an animal that's never been ridden on but but i'm not jesus he created this donkey and so we had ultimate authority over it all four gospels recall this event and and, and as we've been doing several times lately we've sort of pieced it all together in home group and it's we've really enjoyed it in our home group i hope you have in yours we'll we'll do that there are a lot of important elements and i may refer here or there to some of the things that were happening oddly mark does not recall the primary prophecy that this event was to which this event was pointing but matthew and john both do he was referring uh, to They were referring to a prophecy that had been written over 500 years earlier by Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. On the foal of a donkey. In addition to this prophecy, there's an allusion to Genesis 4. And later in this text, there are going to be pieces of verses from Isaiah taken. Uh, But for the most part, Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118 are the two prophecies that that are prominent in what happens on Palm Sunday. And yet again, clear evidence to the Pharisees. Clear evidence to anybody who cared enough to examine the Scriptures. That Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised. Yet they continually rejected him. John tells us that not even the disciples though understood the significance of this event until later. They understood though that something something big was happening. And and it was pointing to Jesus. The long awaited Messiah of Israel who would deliver his people. They, They thought that. That Jesus would deliver his people from the Romans. But in reality Jesus was going to to deliver his people from eternal destruction. Their sins had separated them from the Lord. And unless something would be done about that sin. They would spend eternity away from God. Even though they were Jews. And even though as much as they possibly could. As close as they possibly could. They kept the law talk more about that in a few minutes, but let's just think about these events that happened uh, on that Palm Sunday in Jerusalem in the year of Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, in the week of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. After the disciples secured the donkey and Jesus sat on it, the, the disciples and the others who had been following Jesus Uh, Well, first of all, the disciples put their garments on the animal and then they started laying them on the road. And John tells us that it was palm branches like the children were waving this morning that were put down simply, you know, just to pave the way. It was like their way of rolling out the red carpet. Shouting praises to the Lord. Uh, This seems to have been a spontaneous action. That happened quite a bit during celebrations in Israel and remember this is Passover week and so there's this spontaneous celebration but don't you have a sense that probably the disciples were kind of egging it on like finally he's getting it you know people are beginning to see who he really is and they're saying yes Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord But that's just speculation. It, look, they were praising him. Whether the disciples were, were sort of ramping it up, who knows. It, this was, any way you look at it, it was an impressive celebration. The way that the singing and the shouting is recorded indicates that it was an antiphonal structure to the singing, back and forth. One group sings this, another group sings this. On Friday night. We're going to have some responsive reading at our Good Friday service. And by the way, let me, let me just say about the Good Friday service. People, our brothers and sisters, all over the world, m- most of the people who consider themselves Christian are given far more attention to this week than evangelicals, Protestants in America. We just don't think about it at the same level that most people do. This Is the week to which all of history had pointed and to which we are eternally indebted. What happened in Jerusalem that week? So, if we come together on Friday night, even though many of our brothers and sisters will have done it earlier in the day, even those in the Eastern time zone, a lot of people meet like noon on, on, um, Good Friday, it connects us with the larger body of Christ. Jimmy Elliott from Christian Light is going to be sharing our message, our homily, on Friday night. Jimmy has blessed you in more ways than you can imagine. Probably all of the great things that you think I've said, even if you can write them on one, you know, half of a page, most of those came from Jimmy. I mean, you know, as we talk, we talk about Scripture almost every week, and his insight is amazing. So, the last time he preached was, good grief, it must have been about 10 years ago on a Sunday morning. And you cannot imagine the response. So, please be here Friday night at 7 o'clock. In, in, on Friday, we're going to participate in a responsive reading back and forth. On triumphal, at the triumphal in, entry, the the worshippers sang and practically shouted responsively. And it sounded something like this. Hosanna, save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. (coughs) Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest! They're shouting out back and forth. You know, it's like you go to the stadium and it's tar heels or wolf pack. Really, that's what was going on. They were shouting back and forth, but they were... Praising something so much higher than anything we can praise in our shouts and cheers today. Luke records at least some in the crowd as saying, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." Now, there's there's some di- sig- differences on the significance. Different thoughts on the significance of Jesus riding a donkey. I mean, there are a lot of people who say, "Well, it's what the Israel kings did early on, but they s- soon switched to horses, and the and 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 the king would come in to Jerusalem on a steed." And there there are thoughts that say, "Well, in that day, even in you know other smaller countries within the Roman Empire, if a king, and there were kings, you know, there's King Herod." There was the emperor, but there were kings in little places and some little regional conflicts went on. But Rome would usually get all of that under control. But if a king came on a donkey, he came in peace. If a king came on a horse, he came in judgment. Listen, one thing that everybody agrees on, and and, and you can't miss it. There's no way to miss it. That Jesus rode into Jerusalem in accordance with God's plan as told in Zechariah. So what, what kind of crowds do you think it was that shouted the praises for Israel's deliverer? It's probably the same kinds of people that had been so attracted to Jesus' ministry all along. Poor, relatively uneducated, excitable. It, it was the kind of crowd that would, would cause the Pharisees to mock Jesus. Pff, really? This is the king riding in, really, with this rabble? Makes you wonder, doesn't it, um, what you would have thought about the demonstration on that day. Even though the Pharisees would mock these activities in John 12, we're told that they recognized the danger that Jesus posed. They said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world is gone after him. I love the way, you know, that they sort of talked in that day. I guess no I don't know if it's that they weren't taking responsibility. It's like our elders, you know. Coming up on some conflict and Mike Money Penny saying, "You see what your activity has gotten you? The whole church is falling apart, you know." And it's like he's accusing us when, when there's nothing he can do about it. So I, I, I just—it's just funny to me. That has nothing to do with the message. Not in the, not in the notes. By the way, let me just say, uh, anything that you really get upset with me about—it wasn't in the notes. Wasn't in the notes. And, I mean, I, look, I listened to K-Love So blessed on the way in today, you know, and thinking about the blessings of marriage and all. Of, look, I, I, I'm. It's gonna. I could be defensive and say, "Hey, how would you like to be up here Sunday after Sunday after?" And especially with the kind of mind that I have, but I can promise you, when I say something that really, it's like, "Whoa, what are you?" Hey, that. There's more going on than what I'm saying. Which is why it's idiotic to, to say it, but there you go. I can't, I can't help it. Uh, so don't blame me, all right? It's Mike Moneypenny, see what you've gotten us into? It, it seems that the crowds dispersed as quickly as they had formed after Jesus arrived in the city. Now, think about this. There are so many subtle things in Scripture. Sometimes we read into the Scripture, and again, this is a little bit of speculation, but man, it seems to be really good speculation that one of the writers said about this. It was late in the day when Jesus made his visit to the temple. So before we think about the significance of this visit that didn't result in any activity, let's think about the temple and the surrounding area. Here's what Michael Card had to say about the temple, who was a musician but also a very fine theologian and, and, and historian. Here's what he had to say about the temple that Jesus approached. Jerusalem and its temple context were not the weathered, beleaguered site we know today. Look, if you ever have a chance to go to Israel, a week in Israel is worth a year of Bible college, if not worth a year of seminary. It is everything opens up. I don't know how many of you have been there, but that Dome of the Rock is so impressive. When you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you see that mosque that is there, that is quite impressive. Well wouldn't have been so impressive in that day. The 35-acre temple complex was the largest sacred enclosure in the Roman world. Five times the area of the, the Acropolis in Athens. The top of the golden dome of the mosque that occupies the site today would have reached only the bottom of the door cell of the Jerusalem temple. Some of its foundation stones were larger than any of the blocks of the pyramids in Egypt. The temple itself gleamed of white marble and pure gold. Had it been in existence earlier, it would have been on Herodotus' seven wonders of the world. This was an impressive structure. You can see why the Jewish leaders were so proud and so protective of this temple. It was their national identity. And they absolutely believed that Jesus threatened the future of the temple. Therefore, he threatened the future of the nation. Because they twisted his words to say that he was speaking against the temple. He wasn't speaking against the temple. God had been the one who put it there. But he was speaking against the abuses that the people had made of the temple. And he, and he used the word temple with his body as an analogy, and it got all twisted up. You, can, you, you um, might remember that <clears throat> some of the people who accused Jesus at his trial, just a few days after Palm Sunday said that he threatened to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. Well, he had, actually, in John 2. Early in his ministry, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they said, did you hear that? Really? This incredible structure? You're going to, first of all, you're going to tear it down? How dare you say such a thing? It was idiotic to think that he could. Except that the whole world had gone after him. But he was referring of course to his body. He said you will destroy this temple. And I will raise it up. Three. And, and, and in reality they had been destroying this temple for years. In the ways that they treated God. In response to his law. On this Palm Sunday, Jesus would go to the temple and he'd look around. I mean, this place where thousands of sacrifices were being offered every day during the Passover season in ritualistic expectation of forgiveness was surveyed by the Son of God who would within days offer himself as the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. It was late in the day on Palm Sunday and it was late in the day for the temple system. Even in all of its splendor and its apparent promise for the nation of Israel, it was late in the day. Surely though, the Jews must have known as the writer of Hebrews concluded That the sacrifice, the offering, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Just the very fact that you had to come back year after year after year after year. This was not a good system. You were one missed sacrifice away from being doomed. Surely this system was pointing to something far better in God's plan. So why was this system so appealing? Well, first of all, look at the temple. It's one of the marvels of the the ancient world. And besides, if you know what you have to do, then you can, look, just tell me how I'm supposed to act and I will act that way. Just tell me what I have to do in order to be saved and I'll do it. You know that song today. Go to church, be a member, be baptized, give money. All of those things are good. All of those things are important. But it's not a system. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. But this system that was in place in that day was a pretty... It was a good working system, and the Pharisees were the kings of that system. But God had always made it clear that it was faith, not works that pleased Him and that counted us as righteousness. The news news from, from the Old Testament that God looks on the heart, not on outward appearances. The splendor of the temple and the active participation in the sacrificial system of large numbers of Jews year after year caused the religious leaders to look around and say, it's working. And they put confidence in the flesh. They put confidence in the the activities that happened there and the show that they were able to put on year after year. Look, you, you... You think we've put a little bit of time, David's put most of it, into the Good Friday service? You think that's something? It was nothing compared to the show that they put on in Israel every year. But it was late in the day. And the glory of God was no longer found in the house where man sought his own recognition and glory. The Jews had long since uh, quit pointing to the glory of God and... Pointing to this glory, there would be a great deal of activity and debate that would occur in this week. And we're going we're to get to that in due course. But let's think about, as we close on this Palm Sunday, why Jesus needed to die. Why, why was it so necessary that Jesus die? I mean, why was it necessary to replace the temple system? This system seemed to be working so well. So why couldn't Jesus just get with the program and bring all of his followers into the system that already existed? Why did God require Jesus to die as a part of his plan? The short answer is to save us from our sins. When the disciples followed Jesus into Jerusalem, when they went before him and they followed him shouting and all the people around you see the crowds were stirred, they were certain that god 's plan led straight to a throne. I mean, perhaps they expected war with Rome, and maybe even one or two of them wouldn 't be there when the dust cleared, but they were certain this was god 's will, and they had scripture to give them give them confidence when they shouted out, "Hosanna, save us!" They had a temporary salvation in mind they weren 't seeing the big picture. Just think about your life. Just think about how often when you say, save me, Lord, you're thinking in the short term. I want I want out of this pain. I want out of this sadness. I want out of it as badly as you do. I promise you. And when I cry out, Lord, save me. I don't use those exact words, but that's my heart. Please deliver me. From this particular trial in my life. I'm looking at the short term. But God's plan was far grander in scale. Than anything the disciples could have imagined. It, it involved salvation for all eternity. And not only for the Jews. But for all who would believe that Jesus' death on the cross. Was payment for their sins. Well, what's the big deal about Jesus anyway? I mean what's the big deal about sins? not like I've murdered anybody. I may, I may have cheated on my taxes a little bit, but I hadn't cheated on my wife. Come on. We're, we're always comparing, aren't we, when we think about sin? I mean, we think about those who are better than us or those who are worse than us. But look, when we think about death and judgment, we almost always choose those who are worse than us. Eh, maybe my chances aren't so bad, you know. I mean, there is a way that, you know, so-and-so acts and had not done that after all. <clears throat> Look, if you find yourself looking down your nose at other people, I can promise you everybody else knows what your issue is. They just do. If you're constantly saying, well, so-and-so, well, so-and-so, look in the mirror. That's not in the notes either, you know. (laughs) And I'm talking about your neighbor, not you, I promise you. Not anybody in your family. (laughs) So we compare ourselves, but, but that's not how it works. No matter how good we are, we're going to be judged by the standard of the holy righteousness of our creator. And that standard is perfection. And perfection is just a, just a very weak attempt for us to understand him. His holiness and righteousness goes so far beyond perfection. You may be perfect on a test that you take today. You may be perfect on a chore or, a, or a, <clears throat> some kind of task that you have to perform at work today, but you never know about tomorrow, do you? And somewhere, you're going to flunk a test. And look, even if you make 99, you flunked. If you're trying to jump the Grand Canyon, you know, it doesn't matter how far you get. You're going down. With regard to our moral standing before God, one glitch makes us imperfect. And He's holy. We cannot stand before Him with His approval if there is the slightest imperfection in us. That's too bad, right? Right? I mean, no animal sacrifice at the magnificent temple will remove our sin. We were, before Jesus' crucifixion, we were therefore doomed with no hope of redemption because we could never do enough to make it right. You'll recall maybe when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, not in the Gospel of Mark, it's in John He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. On this Palm Sunday, Jesus established himself as king. Remember in the covenant language of the Old Testament, the Jews were looking for prophet, priest, and king. And there was no way those three offices could reside in the same person except that God made a way for that to happen. He was a priest after after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, he could be prophet and king and priest all at one. All in one person. And and now this king would go to the cross to die as the once and for all perfect sacrifice in our place. Jesus' sacrifice, or, or to put it plainly, God dying was necessary. Not because God needed to save us from ourselves. Too late for that. Too late. We're sinners. It's too late for us to stand righteous before God. Death has to follow sin. It was not because God needed to save us from Satan, who only has power in and over our lives as the Lord allows it. Everything is filtered through the Father's hand. It was necessary for Jesus to die in order for God to save us, well, from God. Because of his righteousness, his wrath is directed not only towards sin, but towards sinners. Careful how you use the language. Apart from Jesus, God's wrath is poured out on us. And yes, God will cast you into hell apart from Jesus. It's not that you put yourself there, as some want to say. Well, it's not that God puts me there, I put myself. No, God will put you in hell unless something is done about your sin. And so God had to save us from himself. When Jesus hung on the cross, according to the Father's plan, God poured out every bit of his wrath toward sin on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Aren't you glad this was God's plan when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that day? It was not at all the plan that the disciples had, and it looked for all the world like the plan had gone so bad, go so so badly that it would never ever be able to be fulfilled in the ways that we thought it was going to be. It's like, well, there's so many examples, and I I won't even jump into the, you'll you'll talk about some of these in home group this week, but so so many times you think, I know this is God's will, it's so beautiful, He's leading, and then there's disaster. I mean disaster. And you end up thinking, what, did I miss God's will? No, just that God's plan is so much bigger than you and I. Is so much bigger than we're able our, to get our finite minds around, and, and, and to conceive how God could take something, be- make something beautiful out of this horrific mess. That is, in our plan of how it ought to go, and then it goes wrong. So often, God's plan is not at all what we wanted. But in the end, we see the wisdom and the beauty of his design for us. Even if it is when we stand before the Lord. When am I ever going to get past this sickness when you stand before Jesus? When am I ever going to get over this sin when you stand before Jesus? When is when, when? That day. Oftentimes, because the gospel is such a part of our lives and such a part of the world around us. We get to see glimpses of redemption and even restoration of what God's doing beautiful things in our lives. But that cycle will start again before we know it. Creation, fall, redemption, until the day we stand before Jesus. But we will stand before Him. Because the plan went horribly awry on Passion Week. Except that it was exactly... As God had ordered. Not only the disciples, not, it wasn't only the disciples that didn't like this plan, Jesus didn't really like this plan. God, if there's any way, please, if there's any other way, let this cup of wrath pass from me. But the Father's will was that he drink it to the last dregs. And when he said, It is finished. Our salvation. The salvation for all who repent of their sins and trust in Him was complete. Thank you, Jesus, for wearing that crown of thorns for becoming sin that I might become the righteousness of God.
1: Let's pray. Be reminded... that you are saved to participate in eternal worship. From Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 2, At once I was taken in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around even under his wings and if all of this wasn't amazing enough this was yet not the focus all of these amazing creatures their focus was Jesus day and night they never stopped saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come when the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. This week, today, right now, let's lay our crowns with them before this throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and And honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen and amen.